From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined's Science News Roundup. On today's program, we've gathered three of our favorite scientists to talk about this month's record-breaking heat in Europe. We're going to also talk about giving cancer cells a cold, a startling discovery about trees, a 23-year-old who's already made the discovery of a lifetime, and yes, we're going to throw in some spacey stuff too. That's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today, as we do every last week of the month, we're taking a break from our routine of looking for connections in seemingly unconnected scientific research in order to talk about even more science news that captivated our minds over the past 30 days. We've gathered together just the right group of scientists to help us with that mission today. Joining us in the studio today for the second time on our monthly news science roundup is Julie Kiefer. She's a biochemist who spent several years in a research lab before turning her attention to helping people bridge the gap between scientific discovery and public understanding. She is now the manager of science communication at the University of Utah Health Sciences, and she is in studio with us today. Hi, Julie. Hi, how are you? Great. Thank you for joining us. And also joining us on the line from Utah State University, and for the second time on our news roundup, is Morella Meyer-Fica. She studies reproductive biology, toxicology, environmental exposures, and epigenetic influence. Morella, thanks for coming back to chat with us again. Happy to be there. And joining us from a little further north at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, is Andrew Gilreath-Brown. He last joined us in May to talk about how he had a hand in discovering a 2,000-year-old tattooing needle, one of the oldest such instruments ever discovered. Listeners interested in learning more about his work should listen to our interview, of course, but they can also find his story in the pages of this month's National Geographic History magazine. Andrew, congrats on all the great exposure. We're happy to have you back on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me back on the show. I think it's fair to say that this month's science news coverage was pretty well dominated with reports and articles and videos and photo galleries memorializing the moment in 1969 when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin set foot on the moon. Michael Collins, of course, was the astronaut who stayed behind to pilot the shuttle. Now, of course, this is an event that invokes feelings of nostalgia and patriotism and pride, and I, I think in almost all of us, but it also made me want to look ahead. Is there any other single event that could invoke this much enthusiasm about a scientific achievement? I wanted to know what the three of you thought about that. How can we get people as excited about the research scientists are doing every day as people were back then when somebody stepped foot on the moon. Julie, you want to start us up? I think it's hard to predict. What's unique about this particular event is that it was an event. People could anticipate it, they could plan for it, they could, you know, set their alarms so they could be up at night to watch it, and everybody was watching it at the same time, and so they could be there when this was happening. And so that really doesn't happen very often in science. Here you had the human element, too, with, with people really accomplishing this amazing, amazing feat. It's actually very hard for me to guess what would be equivalent in the future. I think time has yet to tell. Andrew, what do you think? It really brought to light a lot of the issues that were going on kind of surrounding that landing on the moon and, and excitement, but there was also people were dealing with poverty. There were equity issues. Uh, different kind of issues that have kind of propelled themselves forward here now, even with the space program, like the all-women spacewalk, um, the spacesuit. NASA last month announcing the private astronauts being able to go to the International Space Station. In a lot of ways, I'm hoping that 
looking back on the moon landing is that it will generate more emotion onto how to maybe get excited about handling poverty or the increase in people that will be displaced by global warming, um, these kind of different issues that can be reflected back. I mean, I definitely still think it's important to, to explore, but to also put some of that excitement and energy and the amazing things that we've done in space exploration and put them back on the people and back on our planet. Morella, Andrew just mentioned global warming. Out of all of the moon landing coverage this month, I really liked the New York Times article written by John Schwartz in which he posed the question, we went to the moon, why can't we solve climate change? The moonshot technology we need, he argues, is just political will. That's what we needed to get to the moon. You're not just a scientist, Morella, you're also a citizen. What do you see that gives you hope that we're working in the right direction to do a moonshot for climate change? Do you think that that's possible for us moving forward? I for sure hope it is possible. Science always happens in a social and political context. And in the time back there, it was this attitude of can-do and this competition. At the same time, it took many years before this goal of a man walking on the moon could be achieved. And we have to consider there were, I think, five failed trials before the first even unmanned lunar mission succeeded, and then many failed trials before the manned mission started. So I think what what I take away from this is good science requires people to work hard, work together, be enthusiastic, and have perseverance. And I think the same thing is what we need for climate change. Some people, I think, still are a little bit in denial about that it's really happening, even though there is so much evidence now. We, as scientists, we tend to be overly critical with our own data. If there is a slight chance that there is a different interpretation possible, we won't claim it as, oh, this is what's going on. There's still the 0.01% chance there's another explanation for it. But as citizens, I think it's more than past the hour for us to start acting on it. People with an agenda really jump on those scientific caveats. We often hear political arguments against working to stop climate change. One of the most popular talking points, which is employed by Senator Marco Rubio and President Trump alike, is to say, hey, weather on Earth is always changing. Have you heard of the Little Ice Age? But a report in the journal Nature this month directly contradicts that view. Essentially, these researchers found that nothing, not volcanic eruptions and not the Little Ice Age, nothing even close to modern day global warming has happened on Earth in the past 2,000 years. Do these reports do any good when it comes to public perception and public policy? Or are climate change deniers just so calcified in their thinking that they're going to carry their beliefs and their votes with them all the way to the grave, Julie? Unfortunately, I I think it's, you're right, it's probably more the latter. People seem to be set in their ways when it comes to this particular topic. And scientific evidence really has no bearing. The government has been instructed to not even use the words climate change. So uh, this is a very interesting study showing that, you know, the warming that we have now is unprecedented. There have been no extended periods of global change in climate like the one that we're experiencing now, um, at least not in the last 2000 years. But I think it's easy for people who don't want to think about global warming uh, in the way that we do to find excuses not to believe in that. 
Andrew, what do you think? Can can we change public perception or are we just kind of stuck with the people who've made up their minds and we've got to really work on the people who haven't yet? You know, unfortunately, the people that will get uh, most affected are people that are poor and lower socioeconomic classes that are going to get more displaced, um, that don't have the funds to just move. And I think as more people are impacted, there's going to be more and more grassroots movements for something to be done. And another study that the Pages 2K Consortium that works also with a study that published in Nature Geosciences, it's pretty important because it really shows this kind of this very basic difference between uh, volcanic forcing. So you have things like Mount St. Helens in the 1980s, materials reached all the way to Europe, caused the cooling effect, usually followed by some type of warming trend as kind of the Earth system uh, recovers. But these still have kind of their spatial boundaries, whereas man-made CO2 is shown in this, in this nature study pre- pretty clearly reaches almost everywhere around the planet, which is simply unprecedented. So I think in that aspect, the study is really pretty groundbreaking and seeing that kind of global versus more local to regional scale variation. Let's stick with the subject of climate change. Another phenomenon that got international attention this month was the sweltering heat wave that smashed temperature records across Europe. Temperatures in Paris reached 109 degrees Fahrenheit. To put that into context, the all-time record temperature in Salt Lake City, which is an actual desert, is 107 degrees. Marilla, you hail from Europe. You are from Germany. What did you take of this heat wave and what it portends for our future? One thing that I just got last week was a picture from my mom showing the thermometer of reaching 42 degrees Celsius, which is 108 degrees Fahrenheit, and that in Germany, which is a little further north, even than France. So it is it is unprecedented. And a consequence of that is that I think people in Europe, at least the ones I talk to, they are not as much in this climate change denial um, party anymore. They, I think for them, it's a reality. And Europe at least, you know, Germany and France, they haven't had to deal with it. So people normally don't have air conditioning. So it's it's impacting public health in a, in a big way. We shouldn't forget about considering what it's going to do to the food supply and agriculture in the long run. So it's a scary scenario there. The upside is that because it's so tangible for everyone, there is more enthusiasm for doing things about it. And I think this is where we have to get the world population to have the same enthusiasm and can-do attitude that we had for, for the moon landing. Here on Undisciplined, we love discovery, and there were some absolutely bonkers cool discoveries announced this month. One of the most intriguing came out of the Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand, where researchers have reported on the stump of a cowrie tree that probably should have died since it didn't have any leaves, but it was being kept alive by surrounding trees that had reached out to make a connection and funnel water and nutrients to it through an interconnected root system. That wouldn't be so amazing if this tree was part of a clonal system like aspens, but cowries are singular trees. These trees were cooperating to keep one of their own alive. What did you guys learn from the study? Well, I, I was just glad that it wasn't that I that I found out that it wasn't like the upside down tunnel system and Stranger Things. It kind of reminded me of the trees and the redwoods that are growing top of, of dead trees, and that we usually see these kind of individual trees as competing for resources or things like crops like corn. 
are competing for resources, but it's kind of a beautiful thing in this instance where the trees are supporting one another. The thing that I thought was the most interesting is the potential for thinking about trees more as these network systems, especially in the mentions of diseases, you know, trying to figure out how you can cut down on how a disease spreads throughout a network. And just learning of these connections between trees, uh, potentially how you could look at them as networks and be able to limit the spread of disease within tree species as well. Yeah, one thing that I found also fascinating is that it demonstrates or illustrates this concept of forests as superorganisms compared to just having trees individuals. I think we, we as humans, we, we are animals, right? So for us, it's easier to accept that animals can cooperate for the common good or to keep the species um, happy and healthy. And obviously now we, we are learning that trees can do the same thing. So I think we probably have to open our mind a little bit towards that plants are not just those lonely individuals that don't recognize anyone else around them, but they are cooperating just like what we're used to see in, in animals. If that research didn't blow your collective minds, here's something that's pretty shocking. Researchers in the United Kingdom found a strain of the common cold virus might be able to infect and kill bladder cancer cells. It's super important, as always, to note that this was a fairly small study of 15 patients. But the implications here are still kind of insane. Were you three as excited about this as I was, Julie? Yeah, I, I thought this was pretty cool. This is a really clever way of telling the body that there is something invasive in there and uh, triggering the immune system to come and attack it. So the problem with cancer is that these are our own cells that have gone haywire. And so our immune system is there to defend against viruses and bacteria, but they're not trained to defend against ourselves. So now by infecting these cancer cells with a virus, now all of a sudden the immune system says, hey, there's something wrong here, and it can come in and attack it. So it's really clever. What possibly adds to the significance is this isn't the first time that something like this has been done. A similar study was done in the context of skin cancer and I think also in prostate cancer. So when you have a novel uh, finding, um, that's really cool. But when you can repeat it um, in certain ways, um, that's when it starts to become meaningful. Morella, you are a health science researcher studying uh, reproductive biology and toxicology and environmental exposures and epigenetic influence. I imagine your perspective on this uh, might be interesting as well. What did you take out of this report? Like Julie said, the study was cleverly done. The virus that people used had this big advantage. That viruses always need a receptor, like a docking station that allows them to attach to certain cells. And the virus they used, it happens to attach to a molecule that bladder cancer cells express at a higher level than other cells. And actually, those researchers could trigger the cancer cells to express even more of basically this docking station that allows the virus to attach. So basically, they gave a drug that allowed more virus to attach, and then this virus was signaling to the immune system, come on, something is wrong here, and the immune system could just lyse those cells. So this was such a cleverly done study. What excites me about it is this concept of marking cancer cells can be can be expanded. So even if you don't happen to have a virus that recognizes this specific cancer type, 
with biotechnology's capabilities nowadays, we could probably design viruses that would recognize other types of cancer. So this study is exciting for the bladder cancer field, but it also opens a door to potential treatment or augmentation for treatment of all kinds of cancer. So it's a really cool study. It seems like in science there's a tendency to try to curb our enthusiasm about findings like this. In fact, you guys mentioned this a little bit earlier about always kind of presenting the caveats that is our scientific responsibility. That's perfectly understandable because researchers don't want to make promises they can't keep. And some studies can take years to reproduce the result. As researchers, how do you walk that line between wanting to shout from the rooftops about how cool this stuff all is and then also reminding the public and the media that speaks to the public not to get carried away with expectations? Yeah, that's really hard. I think it's showing that something is cool, but explaining the larger context. Part of it is helping people understand that science is a process and that a milestone accomplishment is still has to be one of many steps before, you know, we're close to having that treatment or, you know, maybe one day a cure. And I I even hate to I hesitate I hate using the word cure because that's such a tall order that it's kind of become taboo to even say it kind of in my circles, the science communication circles. But it, it is important to sort of put everything in context. I was talking to a coworker and, and her son has type 1 diabetes and, you know, she works like I do in sort of the healthcare field. And, you know, when her son was young, you know, she said, you know, she had read so much that was out there in the media about diabetes that she was sure there was going to be a cure within five years. And we're not even close, right? So it's really important not to um, raise the expectations too high because then they're just going to become disappointed down the road and, you know, possibly disengage from a scientific process altogether. I wanted to bring in a question that kind of has similar overtones, and it's related to a story that's really, really cool. A 23-year-old student named Harrison Duran helped uncover a 65-million-year-old Triceratops skull in the Badlands of South Dakota. Stories like the Triceratops story can be pretty fun. They also offer a pretty staggering reminder of our place in this world. This creature lived 65 million years before any of us. It's hard not to feel a sense of awe when you think about that. No? Guys, thoughts? I agree. There there are so many things that happened this week that made me feel really small because it puts you back into a small space in a small time frame. You know, this this triceratops, you know, it's, it's I can't even imagine when when this animal roamed the earth just like the anniversary of the moon landing kind of reminded me that, you know, I'm one small person in one small spot trying to do my one small thing. So, yeah, it it puts you into your place a little bit. Um, but at the same time, I think it also shows you what we can do and that we can try to connect and learn more about what has been going on for a long time. This, you know, filling you with awe doesn't necessarily have to be the small thing. It it also, I think, grows, helps, helps me grow respect for everything that's going on. These findings are still really important, whether it's a triceratops, because you can 
go back and see, you know, what different organisms, what different species interacted with each other, even potentially if you have enough fossils reconstructing food webs um, to kind of understand how those were impacted over time by things like climate or whether it's um, smaller um, cellular items of how these things evolved over time and then how they can be used um, to fight things like cancer and stuff is pretty interesting to me. Yeah, I think this this fossil discovery is is kind of a, also a reminder that I mean, first of all, the Earth has been around for sixty five million years, <laughs> and it it was a very different place sixty five million years ago. Um, you know, deserts became oceans and became deserts again, and you know we're going through this era of global warming. Um, so maybe it's hopeful that oh. We might uh, the Earth might still be around in another sixty five million years. Um, and you know that overall, um, the where we live has weathered a lot of changes. and um, you know, um, gosh, this is sounding depressing. Maybe this isn't the way to go. <laughs> and hopefully we could weather those changes as well. I, I think for me, what it does is it really centers me on the fact that, Look, the the Earth is going to be there. the The Earth is, as I think you guys have noted, has been here for a very long time. It's weathered a lot of changes in that time. It still exists. We have a decision to make about whether we're still going to exist for very much longer with it. And there's some pretty big decisions that get to be made right now. And this month we got some pretty hot reminders of that in Europe. And we also got some pretty big reminders in the form of this anniversary that when we work together to tackle big problems, when we really feel like there's something at stake, we can do a lot of really great things. And that's what I'm taking out of this month. In the time we have left today, I wanted to know what research-related study or news caught your eye this month that you think more people should be paying attention to. Morella, let's start with you. One thing that I found interesting this month is I saw two studies in the cancer biology field that showed that antioxidants might in fact help cancer cells to spread and form metastasis. I thought that was scary and fascinating at the same time because we tend to think that supplements like vitamins and antioxidants are good for you and to now hear that those things actually do harm you and they can make, in this case it was lung cancer cells, they can make them spread faster in the body and that's something we should all pay attention to. We tend to think that vitamins and antioxidants, they are only good and I think as most things in biology, there is a healthy balance. So be careful about joining the cult of antioxidants and vitamins and balance your intakes, of course. Julie, what about you? Well, this is a conflict of interest, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I work at University of Utah. I'm going to talk about a University of Utah study. That is so cool. So um, bioengineers at the U have been involved in developing this robotic arm. They're for individuals who have their arm amputated. They can attach this robotic arm to the person, including a very sophisticated array of sensory electrical grids. And so now the person, just by thinking, can control the arm. And when they touch something, they can feel what that robotic arm is touching, which is so sci-fi and cool. And it's what's really cool is that one of the, the 
study participants is just a, a real estate agent in West Valley who had an electrical accident, you know, five or so years ago. And, you know, al- almost immediately he was able to use this arm and accept it as his own. And that's kind of the cool part. I heard this described as the Luke Skywalker arm. Exactly. Um, very, very yes. cool. And Andrew, wrap us up. What do you got for us? So mine's actually a, a website called Hidden Depth that was launched by researchers at the University of York. And the aim of the study is to use the study of human origins to help kids and teenagers try to understand their emotions and uh, emotional complexities, particularly in a time today when uh, depression is exponentially growing among teens. And they, they say that by understanding where we come from, maybe we can understand why we think and act the way we do. So they in part try to dispel this myth about the past, in particular about Neanderthal, that it was extremely competitive, that if somebody got sick, that they would just leave them if it wasn't kind of survival of the fit. Um, But that's not really what we see in the archaeological record, that people did slow down and they would take care of their own people. And so this website is, is a way for teens to interact with that past. So it's really interesting that you can take this um, kind of archaeological data and try to present it in a way that helps teens potentially look at how uh, emotions developed over time, the kind of evolution of these emotions, and then actually kind of help them to understand those emotions that they're dealing with as they kind of emotionally mature through the teen years. This is a, a cool bit of science communication. Of course, we love science communication here. Andrew, give that website one more time. It's uh, hiddendepth.org. And we're going to have to leave the discussion right there. Marella Meyerfika, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. And Andrew Gilreath-Brown, thank you. Thank you for having me. And Julie Kiefer, it's always a pleasure to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. We recorded today's episode from the studios of KCPW in Salt Lake City. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.